This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have a return visitor, Cole Roscombe, who's Associate Professor of Architectural History at the University of Hong Kong. And he'll be talking about his new book, which follows, I should say, fairly quickly on the last, impressively, uh, Designing Reform, Architecture in the People's Republic of China, 1970 to 1992, which was published this year by Yale University Press. China's buildings and the spaces they occupy and create are a source of fascination for many, from towering skyscrapers to cavernous railway stations, and more recently, the gated residential compounds in which many Chinese urbanites now live and have recently been trapped in during zero COVID lockdowns in Shanghai and elsewhere. One thing that's striking about Chinese urban landscapes in particular is the fact that such radically different architectural styles seem to express different political eras of the country's recent past, from the remains of imperial palaces or city walls to Republican-era shophouses, early PRC medium-rise apartments, and much taller glass buildings of 21st century vintage. Lodged both temporally and physically between these latter two architectural forms, however, are constructions that often receive less attention, namely those of the early reform period, the 1970s to 90s time span covered in Cole Roscombe's excellent new book. Roscombe shows in this rich and readable tome that architecture had a key place in the emerging political, social and cultural developments of that pivotal post-Mao time, which, as we transition ever deeper into a new era under Xi Jinping, seems all the more intriguing and is gaining greater scholarly attention. So it's therefore a great pleasure to have Cole back on the show and to talk about it all and to be able to say, Cole Roscombe, welcome back to the podcast. Ed, thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me back. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and share this new book with you. Well, that's uh, yeah, it's a, a great pleasure to, to have a chance to talk about uh, something so interesting and, and, one, and, and something which, you know, maybe takes our minds away from some of the uh, uh, immediate awfulness of uh, the world around us, if I may say. Uh, not that there isn't anything, you know, crucial and pivotal about uh, everything you discuss in this book. Um, but before we get on to it, uh, perhaps uh, I'll ask you uh, to refresh the listeners a bit about your own bio and background, um, and also to say, you know, how this particular uh, project came along and this period of Chinese architecture piqued your attention. Sure, absolutely. Um, I am, uh, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor of architectural history uh, at HKU, uh, and I've been in Hong Kong for the last 12 years. And um, in that time, my research has broadly covered the architectural history of China in relationship to the world. So my key research interests lie in the way in which architecture, and that's architecture broadly understood, not simply as buildings, but the profession, uh, building codes, the, the governance that often comes with, with buildings and their construction, how architecture broadly understood uh, can be can be seen as mediating China's relationship to the world historically. Um, some listeners may recall uh, my first book, which looked at the treaty port system, specifically in Shanghai, and questions of governance in relationship to the design of the international settlements, uh, the French concession in the Chinese city. Um, this is a book that I think uh, is a departure from those questions and that project, but in some ways is in alignment with some of those issues, particularly the way that architecture is being used and deployed to transition from one physical, social, political reality into another. Gotcha. Um, and I might just ask a few questions about, or a question about that transition from the last project to this one. As you mentioned, it is a significant uh, break or a, a departure from that uh, Shanghai book. Um, so I just wonder, since there are plenty of listeners, I think, who you know are involved in research and involved uh, in particular in moving from one research project to another or considering how that's done, um, was it a smooth transition? Did it feel like a kind of 
break away from something you were sick of or you know how did this kind of move on to really something so different a totally different period in many ways a different a different geography as well there are lots of uh, locations outside you know Shanghai that come into this uh, book how did that kind of process from one research project to another work yeah, um, this was a project that initially emerged in the last year or two of my graduate studies as I was completing the dissertation, which became the basis for the book on Shanghai. Um, I was also fascinated by more recent design and construction in China and, and the urbanism in China over the last 20 to 30 years. And I began to dig a bit deeper into the more recent history of that development. Um, of course, I was living in China um, at certain periods of time in graduate school and was traveling in and out of China. And so I had this this personal direct engagement with the built environment that um, I think triggered questions about where all of it came from. Um, so as I began to look further back in time, I pushed all the way back to really, one could argue, um, the uh, events like Nixon's visit to China in 1972, which uh, was 50 years ago this year. Um, and I began to recognize that there were early diplomatic moments and also early um, economic ties being established that then became the basis for reform, but also the basis for architectural change. Um, I should also say that a kind of parallel project that's emerged from this research is China's relationship to Africa. That too was something that stemmed from my initial interest in contemporary events and contemporary design and construction. But as I began to um, tease and trace this thread back further, I realized there was a much longer history in the case of China and Africa, one that extends back into the early 1960s. So the early reform period, and, and in fact, the moment that immediately preceded that in the 1970s, seemed to, to mark a shift, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, a, a transition of sorts that um, warranted further study. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, that's great. And all those different elements are, you know, uh, very deftly woven together and integrated uh, within the book, the, the kind of macro level diplomatic and political interest with the, you know, specific kind of details and uh, and textures of, of architectural practice and of, you know, form forms of architecture themselves. And, uh, you know, I think uh, hearing, of, you know, how that sort of insight came from living in China and so on, I, I, I'm thinking of all the uh, buildings of a sort of pre uh, 21st century vintage that one you know sees in Ch in China Chinese cities up to now these kind of often white tile or or these kind of slightly taller but not really tall buildings and you know I think uh, I, I've always been interested in uh, in those as a sort of monument to something but never really in my mind put that together with as you say kind of pivotal moments like the the Nixon visit or the opening up and the, the kind of um, yeah, engagements that were going on. So it's great to see all of that sort of laid out uh, in the book. Um, speaking of which, let's uh, let's get into it then. Um, now, you begin the introduction uh, by highlighting kind of two examples, which I think speak to issues that you've uh, raised there, uh, both the Beijing Hotel or an extension uh, added to the Beijing Hotel uh, in Beijing, funnily enough, uh, in the 1970s, and also the uh, Tazara Railway. Um, built in, uh, in East Africa, uh, also in the 70s or started in the 70s. So could you say a bit about why those two projects kind of crystallize some of what you're wanting to say here in the book? Absolutely. Um, I saw these these projects as, as the beginnings of, of early reform, innovation and experimentation in architecture. Um, China, of course, was coming out of the um, the heights, let's say, of the of, of the Cultural Revolution, and there were a number of uh, questions being asked within the party about the, the the country's direction forward, and internally at least some debate about how the country would would um, re uh, rejuvenate its economy. The East addition to the Beijing Hotel was a direct response of coming out of those conversations. The idea that um, new spaces were needed for foreign diplomats, uh, business people. Um, travelers to um, come into Beijing, and uh, were kind of, I think the, the the project becomes seen as a as a as a monument of some early nascent um, pivot away from the the 
the kind of violent ideology of, of the culture revolution. Um, the project, upon its completion, was the tallest building in Beijing. And so there were certain feats of engineering that were required to realize that project. Um, and it was done um, uh, by the uh, designed by the Beijing Institute of, of, of Architectural Design um, and, and proclaimed as the latest um, landmark in Beijing in celebration of, of Mao and his uh, revolutionary vision. So that project then um, I saw in, uh, uh, in parallel with uh, international infrastructural investment and construction that China was undertaking uh, in Zambia and um, Tanzania, uh, specifically the Tazara Railway that you mentioned. It's a project that's very different in many ways. Of course, it's not within China. Um, but it was similar in, in terms of its 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 aspirations as an engineering feat, but also as a as a project, as a, as a space, as a as a technology that might reinforce and um, substantiate a diplomatic and uh, economic ties. So both of the both of the project projects, although distinct, I I, I felt like they were um, being um, imagined with the same kinds of motives in mind. Mm. And throughout, actually, you you kind of shift uh, very, I think, effectively between both inward and outward vectors, uh, you know, into, into and out of China, uh, both kind of external influences or, or conversations that were going on. And, and yeah, as you said, people coming to China, including those guests that might stay in this new extension to the to the Beijing Hotel, and also tra- uh, tr- people moving outside China ideas and, and projects moving outside China among them the Tazara, but also study tours and exchanges and things that saw people uh, going beyond China's borders. So I think, uh, you know, seeing opening up in, in, in those two ways, not just China internally kind of opening to external influences is a really, uh, I think, interesting and, uh, and important uh, angle on this. Um, so, I mean, given that that's the sort of reform process that, that you know, uh, is, is uh, the focus of, of the book as a whole that frames it, um, why were buildings, uh, in your view, so important to the reform process? What do we learn about reform uh, by looking at buildings and architecture specifically? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, you're a professor of architecture, so you would look at architecture. But, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe therefore you can tell us what, what it is that that sort of says about reform that hasn't been said. Sure. Um, I think, yes. So there's a tendency, I think, to understand architecture as a response to political change or to, to economic transition or, or, or cultural identity. Um, at the same time, I think there's uh, a tendency to overlook the ways that architecture can participate or contribute to these processes. And that goes beyond the, um, the, the, the physical elements of the building per se, and uh, begin to examine and, and, and dig into the ways that perceptions can be shaped by architecture the way that architecture can actively shape behaviors and begin to induce certain practices. Um, and then even more broadly understood the financing of architecture, the, the, the process of design itself, the way that architects have to or often work in collaborative teams with each other and the extent to which um, architects are communicating with engineers and and, and developers and other, other agents in um, these projects, it's an incredibly complicated and, and complex task to, to build a building. Um, and so I, as an architectural historian, of course, um, I see uh, my, my job as being to unpack and to, to uh, examine the multitude of different uh, influences and, and, and factors and forces that go into design and construction. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's, uh, as an architectural historian, I see architecture as much more and architectural history is much more than just a stylistic analysis of a building. Um, and it's kind of optical qualities, let's say, but, um, uh, much more about the, the, um, the systems and the, uh, uh, materials and the ways that, that people are actively engaging and engaged with through, through buildings. Right. And I mean, I wonder, uh, you know, speaking uh, as someone, you know, an expert in in, our, in architectural history more generally, would you say that uh, aside from applying to China in the case that you identify here, is that part of a broader conversation? Is, is uh, thinking of architecture in that way something that is currently uh, quite 
high in the in the mix of, of architectural history or architecture as, as a as an academic discipline. I mean, thinking from the perspective of anthropology, for example, you know, there's been quite now longstanding interest in agency or, or you know, uh, kind of the, the the ability of things beyond the human to act and and exert uh, you know sort of yeah will and agency on the world potentially. Uh, would you say similar conversations are happening in architectural uh, studies more broadly? Absolutely. This the scholarship of figures like Bruno Latour, of course, and, and others um, have had an impact upon architectural history and the way that historians are reading and understanding um, buildings uh, and all of their various constituent parts. So I, I, I think that's definitely a, a trend sounds pejorative, but I would say there's definitely been a shift, let's say, within the discipline towards understanding architecture and, and defining it in those those broader, but also those more complex ways, uh, and so I think how all of this figures into reform. To get to get back to your to your question, is that the reform period is often overlooked by architectural historians and historians of China more generally. It's seen as a somewhat awkward, even embarrassing moment um, in relationship to how buildings were designed and constructed, and the types of ideas that were influential in in shaping those buildings. Um, and the, the task, as I saw it in my book, was to, to reassess the moment, not, not simply as a transitional period, but as one that stood on its own merits, one that had value with buildings that were really vital to the, 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 the party and its um, mission with respect to opening and reform but also as a as kind of catalysts of incredibly exciting and inspirational, um, creativity, uh, not simply architects, but the public at large. These were buildings that were um, quite exotic and new um, buildings that, that with composed of materials uh, that that um, a number of residents of cities like Beijing or Shanghai and and even places like Xi'an or Nanjing had had never seen before, and um, they, they were in, incredibly. Um, new, uh, in some cases alienating, but in other cases intoxicating uh, spaces and environments that in fact, the average Chinese citizen was not allowed to simply walk freely within. So in many cases, the first experience of these buildings for your average resident in China would have been from the from the outside to, to, to peer into these projects or to gaze up at these projects and attempt to make sense of them uh, in relationship to all of the the broader economic changes that were taking place, mm, absolutely, and and I mean you point out uh, I think one really really important, almost self evident, but very fascinating and worthy of uh, highlighting point, which is that at this point at which so much contentious conversation was going on politically about what to do in the you know how to change uh, or, or where to go post Mao, um, of course the broader public was not party to any of these sorts of uh, discussions going on, uh, you know, intra-party debates and disputes and stuff. Uh, but if a new building pops up, uh, whether that's to, uh, you know, yeah, host uh, foreigners that you're not allowed to contact or, or see or, or mix with, uh, or to, you know, or, or maybe has a role uh, more integrated with existing Chinese society, well, that's a kind of undeniable monument <laughs> to something changing, right? It's, it's a physical manifestation of, of a shift that, can't be concealed in the corridors of Zhongnanhai or, or you know any, anything else. So I thought that was a very um, you know just a, a very striking point again, and one which uh, again uh, draws attention to how much I think uh, you know the kind of imminent physicality of cities shapes us uh, even uh, when we're not really thinking about it particularly hard. Yeah, yeah, and I should I should also just quickly add that they they shaped perceptions in many ways in unpredictable ways. Um, these these were were projects that were championed and projected as monuments to reform, monuments to the party and, and the modernization that was taking place. But um, you know, in a, a subjective opinion of a building might might very easily and quickly diverge from the official line. And um, that did take place both in uh, and was evidenced in some of the, the, the primary archival work I did, but also in interviews with people who either worked within um, international hotels or lived in places like Nanjing and and um, were able to recount to me their, their first encounters and experiences with these buildings. Um, for those people I, I met and 
uh, interviewed with who were actually fortunate enough to work within these hotels, of course, the experience was equally intoxicating and alienating, but but very different. It tended to revolve around the, the, the different programs and the different activities that were taking place within hotels. Projects in Beijing, um, hotels specifically, um, introduced things like the first coffee shop into the city, the first French restaurants into the city, the first desk, disco into the city. And um, all of the activities surrounding those spaces um, were influential and, and, and destabilizing in a certain way. Right, right. And yeah, absolutely. Kind of uh, ultimately, as you've also already alluded to, pivotal in shaping subsequent kind of cultural developments and, and the kind of fashions and trends and, and things that emerged uh, in, in the years that followed. Um, I wonder, another way uh, that reform is looked at or a kind of uh, way that the Deng, the Deng Xiaoping era and the changes that happened after Mao were understood is a sort of depoliticization of certain aspects of everyday life and and. Uh, a removal, a withdrawal of, of the parties being up in everyone's business, you know, kind of co- uh, interfering and, and being part of every single tiny thing that everybody was doing. Um, I wonder then, I mean, and you provide a lot of interesting background uh, for the pre-reform era too uh, context in, in the book itself. Do you think uh, architecture became less political, if that makes sense as a question, uh, following this period? I mean, if, if do, you, do you do you agree with that characterization that the pre that the Mao era was a time when everything was politicized, including perhaps architecture? And do you think there was a sort of depoliticization with the reform period, or do you think it remained just as sort of politically significant, if such things can be measured? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think that generally speaking, I don't know that architecture itself can be political. I I don't know that that the, the architecture necessarily exudes a certain politics, but certainly politics are um, projected upon architecture and politics can be read um, through architecture and, and within architecture. Uh, there are also ways, I think, that um, certain political systems uh, work their way within, let's say, the, the organizational, the, the layout of a particular building. Um, and space. Uh, so I would I would I would preface the response with that. But then I would say I don't I don't think the architecture of the reform era is any less political than it was necessarily under Mao. I think it's just a different politics, and I think that that in many ways is one of the sources of anxiety, but also excitement um, that the the uh, dynamics that you described in your question begin to shift where suddenly the party is not able to control the, the information or the objects that people encounter. Um, foreign guests in hotels, for example, uh, accidentally leave things in their hotel rooms. And there's, there's kind of, uh, some, you know, famous, uh, or, or well-known, um, stories about those objects then being picked up by hotel management and then, um, transferred to the next city that the person will be visiting on an official study tour. So there is there is a lot of um, fear about about the, the the power of of some of these some of these things and 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 what some of these encounters might mean for China. And architecture helps to um, intensify uh, those those encounters and and give them a space where they actually can um, can occur. Right. Yeah. And I mean. Uh... I think, uh, yeah, some of those uh, some of those dynamics will be something we come on to in a second. But just finally, uh, moving back to uh, another dimension of, uh, as you've said, of your study in general, the practice of architecture and the role of of, of architects um, within this kind of reframed political context and reframed social and economic context. Um, how did the role of architects themselves change, and and uh, you know what was the sort of uh, role of of their activities, their craft uh, between the Mao period and, and this reform era? How, how is looking at their lives revealing of this time? Mm. So the, the key mechanism through which um, all of China's architectural design was produced was the, the state-run design institute. And these were, were large uh, um, collaborative uh, work units that compose, were composed of architects and engineers and, and technicians. Um, and all of their their work was was state driven work by and large up up to the the um, 
uh, mid to late 1970s. And uh, over the course of the 1980s, it became increasingly clear that like a number of state-owned enterprises in China, the Design Institute had problems related to efficiency and economy. And as, as the party began to think uh, uh, in more market-oriented terms, it began to reassess the, the administrative systems and structures that were in place within China. And so the Design Institute in my book is, becomes a case study through which to, to better understand how the, how the party begins to um, not dismantle, but begins to kind of re, re, reconfigure some of these units. And I, uh, uh, as, I, as, I, as I document in the book, there's a, a series of smaller experimental design offices that are initiated and, 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 and uh, overseen by very well-trusted senior leaders um, uh, in China, particularly uh, uh, these leaders who have some foreign experience and, and expertise and even some, some design training and professional experience outside of China. They are um, given responsibility for uh, leading these, these much smaller, more nimble design teams um, and these smaller design teams are are situated within larger uh, design uh, institute frameworks. So what begins to happen, of course, is these offices can work more quickly. They begin to work more efficiently. They can begin to produce different kinds of work, a broader array of, of projects. And they begin to challenge the, the design institute basically from within. And as part of that, a number of interesting questions emerge about who the architect is in China, how the architect works, the expectations and responsibilities of an architect, how an architect is is paid and remunerated, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, all of that is is um, discussed in the book, and it it, it culminates, I think, in um, by the late eighties and early nineteen nineties into uh, uh, what's been understood as a as an. Exp- the, the, the new the rise of an experimental architecture in China through the work of people like Wang Shu, Yang Ho Chang, etc. Um, those are those are figures who were able to establish their own private design firms um, by the mid 1990s. But as I as I detail in the book, these these first initial experiments in not just the practice of design, but the design of architectural practice become really important and significant to to what would follow. Mm. And I think what you highlight there, uh, kind of briefly, is, is this uh, transition more broadly observable, perhaps at the time or, or uh, during that time and since, of privatization, of individualization as well, right? The celebration of certain uh, specific individual architects rather than a kind of agentless production by the state. You know, something that I suppose that was always a paradox for a lot of the Mao era is how do you celebrate specific individual achievement by models and and heroes and lei feng type figures whilst also uh, mainly highlighting the role of the collective um, but the emergence of some of these individual architects whose uh, individual achievements would would previously have been <laughs> politically suspect i think is also a very interesting uh, interesting dimension to this um but uh, I think we'll dive in then to the book itself after this, uh, you know, fairly, I think, uh, a meaty introduction there. Um, the book itself is divided into three parts, each comprising uh, three chapters, which kind of look at different uh, different dimensions. Uh, and as you say, uh, transition really between, uh, you know, the, the kind of sociological, the stylistic, the institutional, many different dimensions of this, uh, uh, you know, architectural shift. Um, and you begin... Uh, somewhere which we've already uh, alluded to, with uh, the kind of new spaces that emerge uh, in order to host, you know, foreign guests or or outsiders coming in, many of them, as you've said, uh, shielded from uh, the the kind of uh, surrounding society. Um, So could you say a a bit more about the kinds of spaces uh, springing up to uh, deal with the new kind of cultural and also the diplomatic place of China uh, in this early period? Sure. So the um, the first building typologies that begin to um, capture and, and introduce um, these these new spaces for reform are um, the diplomatic compound in, in Beijing, and also of course the international hotel. And these become spaces where foreign visitors can reside in, in China for uh, short and long term periods, um, and they are 
privileged and prioritized by the party as as spaces where new technologies, building technologies, um, can be introduced and also studied um, w- within China. And so they they become really important in this in this pivot um, away from the Mao era and towards uh, opening and reform. So the first um, the f- the first diplomatic compounds actually emerge before 1978 and kind of internationalize the city in a, um, a consequential way. There are also projects like the Friendship Store um, and the International Club. And these become spaces where, of course, foreign diplomats can gather uh, and watch films together and, 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 and socialize. And um, the architecture that uh, is associated with those, the, the, that's embodied by those spaces are, I think, have been uh, written about and discussed by um, uh, scholars like Song Ke, uh, as kind of um, late international style type of, of, of project. So there's an aesthetic that um, Chinese scholars have traced back to uh, the work of kind of mid 20th century modernism, um, which is true to a certain extent. But I also, I also feel like there are projects that were in fact quite advanced in, in, in China at the time and became um, really important spaces where, where people could exchange ideas and, and, and engage with each other. Um, the International Hotel, of course, is the other major typology that um, is uh, experimented with over the course of the late 1970s. But then after 1978, with the passage of the joint venture law, um, foreign architects are invited in to partner with uh, Chinese design institutes to craft um, uh, more technologically advanced um uh, projects than had heretofore I- existed in, in China. So projects like the Jiangol Hotel, uh, the Fragrant Hills Hotel, which was designed by I.M. Pei, um, the Great Wall Hotel, which also located in Beijing. These become really early and important landmarks to the, the, re- the reform efforts. Um, Great. Yeah. And no, I mean, the, the International Hotel gets its own chapter uh, later on in the book. And, and I think, uh, again, the identification of that as a, as a sort of key uh, space and an and, and institution really um, suddenly makes sense of experiences that uh, I would imagine uh, many visitors to China might have had noticing that everywhere you know, all kinds of places are called are, are called something something right something something international hotel and this emphasis on the international I think sometimes seems a bit striking it's like why 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 emphasize surely anyone can just stay in a hotel. I mean, actually, that's a trend that is decreasingly the case, uh, I gather, <laughs> more recently in China. But uh, it sort of makes make, makes it uh, clearer, I think, what the origins of that idea are. And, and it's really interesting to uh, read your descriptions of the sort of other uh, organizations, the other um, opportunities that are afforded by those spaces, how, how many new kinds of companies or agencies or uh, kinds of bureaus of things set up in these hotels uh, you know, again, using uh, a space which is afforded a certain kind of separateness uh, from the surrounding city, from the surrounding population to kind of be little experimental zones of new ideas. Um, in terms of the construction of a lot of these buildings, though, uh, this is uh, actually uh, skipping over a chapter in, in the first part here. Um, you highlight the kind of, you know, new building materials and, and uh, technologies that come in. Uh, so um, how did kind of... Uh, new ideas take shape here? How easy was it for brand new design styles that would, as you say, uh, be capable of erecting the tallest building in Beijing? Uh, How did some of those enter China? And was it a smooth process? Um, What were the kinds of materials that arrived uh, with this new construction boom? Yeah, so even even prior to the advent of that kind of that international hotel era, um, there are early technological technological shifts beginning to take place with respect to specific building components. So hollow bricks and and, and wall panels, um, prefabricated elements. These were all building technologies that China had actually already already had dating back to the to the mid nineteen fifties. Some of the some of them were um, experimented with and innovated within China. Others were brought from uh, the Soviet Union via Soviet advisors who were um, uh, very influential in, in early construction of the PRC. Uh, but uh, as a result, not only of the Great Leap Forward, but then of course the Cultural Revolution, these technologies begin to lose favor and begin 
the, the expertise that's required to produce them begins to um, deteriorate. And by the end of the culture revolution, uh, of course, then there's this this push towards reintegration uh, and an effort to, to reach out and engage with the capitalist world, as well as to uh, repair relations with the socialist world and building building materials become an important um, and a vector in that development. So, uh, as, as you mentioned, these these key elements, which I, I discuss in the third chapter, the brick, the block, the panel. These technologies, these technologies become introduced within specific work units uh, in China um, and then become kind of more broadly disseminated around the country over the course of the, ni- the, the, the mid-1970s. There's a, a building, uh, a wall technology uh, campaign that's initiated just after Mao's death in 1976. And all of this lays the groundwork then for the, the large scale construction that 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 would follow um, the the East addition to the Beijing Hotel has some of these technologies in it um, in the 1970s, but um, the technology uh, is able to kind of decentralize out of Beijing and begin to spread to other parts of the country um, more more quickly over the course of the late 1970s and then the the 1980s. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm. And I I, I think, uh, you know, you're highlighting there of the, the Soviet influence, perhaps on some of the early early construction projects, both technologically and, and um, stylistically, is, is important there too. And, and I think uh, addresses maybe some broader conversations uh, that have been going on about the fact that opening up in China, that the, the, the post-Mao uh, sort of uh, shifts were not actually the kind of first time that uh, you know the PRC had ever had international partners or been involved in international conversations, right? And I think um, you, you, you kind of... Uh, contribute there to a sense that if anything it was more just of a, a shift uh, who who was being talked to where ideas were coming from actually the previous uh, kind of ideas had had also kind of come from somewhere not that they weren't you know not that they weren't ultimately uh, Chinese creations but um, the kind of uh, move from certain techniques and technologies um, derived from maybe socialist or Soviet expertise uh, to the capitalist kind of conversation partners, I think uh, is a really interesting thing you trace. Um, I wonder also uh, going to the sort of individual person level of things we've already mentioned, architects, but um, you also highlight some interesting things about the role of workers and and how workers were sort of seen to be involved in these new technologies, how they were supposed to engage with them. Was you know was the was the worker themselves supposed to be a new kind of figure in the construction of these big new buildings? Um, you know, compared to the I guess idealized collective worker of the early period or the, the Mao period. Yeah, um, questions of labor and and, and um, uh, design expertise are also a, a really important theme. I think in in this period, um, there is a, a definite shift away from. Um, the uh, the worker as ideological soldier, let's say, or a revolutionary, and towards the technical uh, expert as the, the the key agent of the state, and th- that's that's also a part of this story. Um, workers uh, begin to take on um, additional tasks and, and are, are are forced to kind of adapt and and modernize their own building practices. At the same time, architects and engineers. Um, a, a so-called technical elite that had been largely marginalized and even, um, you know, punished and in, in, imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution for their technical knowledge, um, take on a, a, a new status. Um, they're uh, they become valued again, um, not simply for their knowledge, but for their relationships and through the networks that they can begin to participate within um, in international terms. Right, and and you, the other component chapter of that first part is uh, discusses the uh, study tour and the exhibition as kind of uh, vectors for the exchange of ideas um, 
across borders and, and the gain, gaining, I guess, of some of that expertise you mentioned. Um, but moving into the second part of the book, um, we begin with uh, yeah, another, I guess, key dimension of this reform era known from other spheres of, of study, which is a, a re-evaluation of the past, a, a new approach to uh, China's history, to heritage and so on. Um, so uh, in the realm of architecture, how was kind of architectural heritage and, and, and buildings from, you know, the deeper past of China re-evaluated or looked on anew uh, in this in this time and what kind of measures were taken vis-a-vis you know, old buildings which might once have been knocked down during the Mao period. Yeah, the, the violence that was inflicted upon imperial era buildings during the Cultural Revolution uh, would have a, you know, obviously a, a lasting psychological effect on, on the population as well as a, a scarring effect on the built environment. And um, so following uh, the opening of reform era, um, Chinese history was, uh, Chinese architectural history, I should say, was was reassessed and, and understood as, as, as having value to the state, um, not necessarily or simply on its own right, but also um, as a, a means of um, uh, building up the country's tourism industry, that uh, heritage had value in relationship to capitalism and to the, uh, the, the the money that people were willing to spend to come and visit China. And so there is this reappraisal of, of China's history taking place on the part of architects and, and conservationists um, who understand their value as objects. But then there's this additional kind of layer of meaning that comes with that with respect to repairing buildings and sites and landmarks that can become sites, can become tourist uh, destinations. Um, so that, yeah, there's a chapter in the book that gets into um, understanding China's architectural history uh, as it's filtered through this, this lens of, um, of reform and, and liberalization and opening up. But it, it, so just in terms of that, you know, new perspective on uh, kind of buildings, yeah, from the dynastic era. Um, did that also have a manifestation in architectural style itself? Was it newly permissible to incorporate kind of classical elements into into buildings? Uh, I mean, lots of the brick block panel type constructions that you that you highlight, you know, would seem not to have space or, or kind of uh, any room for uh, decorative or, or, or otherwise uh, kind of uh, stylistic allusions to that classical period. But was this something that came back in or, or did that happen kind of later? I mean, I'm thinking, I don't know, of the kind of absurd uh, Beijing West, West Railway Station, for example, with those kind of very odd little uh, little whatever cupola pagoda bits on top or things like that. What, when, when did that stuff start to return? That uh, that begins to happen at, at, at around this time. So at, with with the reappraisal of, of China's architectural history, there's this concurrent embrace of um, new architectural theories, foremost of which is postmodernism, of course, and, and contextualism, and understanding architecture as um, as a as a key source of, of of culture and cultural meaning and identity. So Chinese architects are actively debating the ways in which um, Chinese architecture can be modernized at this time. And there are a variety of different experimentations happening uh, through materials and through through aesthetics um, over the course of the 1980s. So it all gives rise to this big roof controversy um, in uh, largely uh, centered on Beijing um, that is uh, uh, promoted to, 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 to encourage this re-engagement with China's architectural history to, to identify sources of, of technology from abroad and then to import those technologies and render them um, uh, Chinese, let's say, through these, these what, what could be understood as kind of gaudy, almost extravagant aesthetic elements on the roof as well as in some of the interior detailing. Mm. Well, and that, and I, I think those kind of uh, creative flourishes, that, that shift, uh, I mean, uh, if we look at, uh, and I, actually, I, I do a bit of uh, teaching on this topic, that looking at um, the ten great buildings of 1959 in Beijing and trying to understand how they are uh, consistent or otherwise with this Stalinist mantra of um, uh, national in form and socialist in content. Um, but uh, I guess that, that yeah, those kind of um, slightly uh, well hard to read uh, kind of constructions that you mention uh, uh, with the, with the little with the roofs and so on 
as I think entirely justify the uh, point you made at the start about this period needing its own <laughs> needing its own focus. It's not just a, a, a hinge period or a, some sort of in between time. It's it, it's deserving of of some you know uh, interrogation to see what <laughs> what's actually going on here. Um, and, and we'll come on to postmodernism in a second, actually, because it's something I want to mention a bit more about or hear a bit more about. But um, before that, uh, in that. Uh, second section of the book, you also discuss in detail the the SEZ, the special economic zones, as as spaces of you know new uh, economic uh, innovation, if you like, in this reform era, and some of the party debates that were going on about you know whether it was okay to allow this kind of capitalist activity in these areas. Most iconically, I guess Shenzhen, adjacent to Hong Kong, but elsewhere too, um, were the SEZs equally spaces of architectural. Innovation were they were they states spaces of exception where sorts of the shackles were off as far as what you could do architecturally just as much as they were economically at this time or, or you know were they more sort of was what was going on there architecturally more in line with what was happening back in the sort of the interior and, and the kind of core parts of the country. Uh, I see the innovations taking place in Shenzhen not, as as not just economic in nature but very much architectural in nature as well. Um, projects, uh, early, early factories and, and hotels to accommodate um, foreign and, and Chinese entrepreneurs uh, from Hong Kong and the, the broader Chinese diaspora um, are all really important to this to this period and to the architectural changes that were taking place. And Shenzhen becomes um, seen as a not just an experiment, but in some ways a kind of model experiment where new financing systems are tested out and experimented with new new different forms of housing begin to be um, introduced into Shenzhen of course uh, Hong Kong plays a, um, a, a tremendous influence and an important role in in that history there's a lot of active exchange um, and, and flows of capital and ideas and people back and forth across the border tourism of course is a is a factor as well Hong Kong, uh, residents who um, want a vacation in Shenzhen and and um, visit relatives, and so with with those those uh, familial networks and connections, architecture uh, inevitably follows and kind of reifies those relationships. So Shenzhen is very much at the forefront of of of, of the, the the experimentation architecturally during the reform period. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 at this time, as as I recall, gets. China's tallest building uh, during, you know, a kind of superseding, I don't know if it directly superseded the Beijing Hotel, whether there were some other uh, contenders in the middle there. But I suppose the idea that the tallest building could be so far from the center is a, is a sort of a, an emblem of that um, experimentation and the elevation of that model as, a, as, a, as you said, a, a kind of new, uh, ultimately a model for the transformation of the whole country. Absolutely. The International Trade Center, yes, is built in record time, um, was a real source of pride for um, the, the, the designers and also the builders behind the project. But as you as you rightfully point out, was also um, a bit uh, disconcerting, let's say an anxiety inducing insofar as the, that the tallest building in the country would be located along the, the Hong Kong border and not not within a, a, a major metropolis like like Shanghai or Beijing or, hmm. or Guangzhou. Right, right. Um, and then moving on to the third and final part of the book, um, we kind of return to a discussion uh, of some of these kind of currents of, uh, of innovation and stylistic schools almost or, or you know, forms and how to understand uh, the practices that uh, we've discussed so far. So I wanted to basically just ask about uh, both modernism and postmodernism as they apply to architecture within a Chinese context specifically. I mean, you know, the, the idea of modernity in general and, and modernism as a, an aesthetic or artistic practice uh, has its own debates about, you know, the extent to which uh, sort of socialist high modernist projects do or do not uh, relate to those going on in the capitalist world at the same time or at different times. So what are the conversations around whether or not postmodernism and indeed modernism itself applies to China and to the kind of uh, architectural forms uh, in particular, both both during this period and indeed uh, before. Yeah, so this was an early subject of debate within within Chinese architectural discourse, and you can um, see it um, 
played out within the journals published at the time. I should also say that there's a, a, a very rapid expansion in the number of journals and magazines and sources of architectural information that architects and and citizens in China could have could have access to at this time. But um, within the pages of a lot of these journals and in conferences, um, there are discussions about exactly that point, whether postmodernism is something that is relevant to China, uh, whether it adheres to the um, the periodization, the party-approved periodization of, of the country's modernization efforts. Um, and that's something that actually has uh, kind of been the source of renewed debate today, right? Whether whether China is socialist, whether it needs to advance into this kind of next level of, of, of socialism. Um, and so all of that figures into these conversations and these questions about what postmodernism means. Can China be postmodern if it if the country hasn't necessarily modernized in necessarily a, a, a cohesive, coherent, um, uh, uh, um, a balanced way? Uh, and and texts like Alvin Toffler's Third Wave, which argues that rapid technological change can effectively allow countries to skip certain stages in technical advancement, um, become very influential to 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 reform-minded party leaders. So, postmodernism, I think, is a is an interesting case where um, uh, the argument's been made that it represents a mistranslation of foreign ideas within China. Um, but I, I, I see it as, uh, in some ways, a, a productive conversation, nevertheless, that inspired Chinese architects to rethink what how they defined architecture, how they wanted to design architecture. Uh, and by the mid to the late 1980s, um, it, be, it, it has a, um, a, you know, a tremendous influence upon the profession at large and triggered a, really a, a rapid broadening of what could be discussed in relationship to architecture in China. Right. And, and I suppose that is consistent with a lot of conversations around how the Chinese uh, sort of states are still pretty state-led model, despite kind of the withdrawal that we discussed earlier of some uh, state involvement in certain aspects of life or party involvement in certain aspects of life. Uh, how, how, how does that interact with the kind of loose, uh, formless, or at least fairly um, entropic uh, patterns of, of postmodern, neoliberal, highly capitalized life uh, in general. Um, but I suppose the conversation that you just highlighted there with regard to whether or not China can fit into a pre-existing postmodern pattern shifts in the years since. And, you know, actually as the economic experiments and the, and the greater power and influence of China develops to a broader question about how China itself redefines these kinds of conversations right it's not just about receiving and and as we've highlighted your book is as much about china going out and things emanating from china as as arriving in them and indeed that's the sort of focus of the final chapter of part three china in africa um so what role has sort of architecture played in the kind of export or um proliferation of uh, a notional china model or the kind of growing influence of the country uh, and and its um, uh, you know uh, patterns of doing things around the world. Yeah, I mean th- this is a very important point, right? That uh, just to emphasize that China is not a passive receptacle for for neoliberal forms of capital. That it's it's actively engaged in in making these decisions um, and, and in developing itself um, on it on its own terms, and that's something that has global ramifications. So. In relationship to postmodernism, or to, for example, Chinese architectural influence in in Africa, um, these are both e- examples where it's it's China's influence that is exerting certain pressures and 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 inducing certain kinds of change, um, uh, regardless perhaps of what's necessarily happening at home. So even as China is importing these ideas and new discourses and new materials, it's also exporting. Uh, new ideas and materials and discourses to other parts of the world. And in the final chapter, I um, discuss not just um, a few selected diplomatic relationships between China and um, Ghana, for example, um, or or Cameroon, uh, but also looking at how architecture is an important um, means by which both diplomatic and economic ties can be 
cemented, let's say, no, no pun intended, but the, 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 the ways in which gift giving, let's say, which is, is something that again, extends back into early PRC history, the, the giving of a building and architecture and technology, uh, as a, as a gift, um, is, uh, influential and consequential to, um, uh, not just the late 1980s, but extending throughout the, the ways in which uh, China's relationship to the African continent has developed over the last 30 years. Right, and actually one which perhaps has roots uh, still earlier in, in socialist traditions of, uh, of this sort of routinized formalistic uh, exchange and, and gifts as expressions of uh, interstate friendship and so on. Um, some really interesting resonances there to trace across across the period. Um well, to conclude, I mean, you, you end the book, uh, the kind of time span focused on in the book in, in 1992. And, and uh, I think that that's a sort of uh, you know, tantalizing reconfirmation of the fact that despite the bumps in the road there in, I mean, that's a very innocuous and probably uh, highly, uh, in, in some contexts, offensive way of putting it, but the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests and the kind of you know moment of, 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 of shaken authority, perhaps, that the party went through at that period, the fact that it was able to double down following Deng Xiaoping's southern tour um, on the reform model, um, I think I think you kind of round it out there and show how these sorts of developing trends that we've discussed uh, have a long afterlife, and you know, you, without understanding them, you can't necessarily appreciate what's happened since. Um, but I did just want to have one final question, which uh, about kind of what's happened since, um, because it's clear that uh, the roots of a lot of these more contemporary processes lie in this period. But so much has changed, of course, uh, in the intervening time, and so many of the buildings of this era are absolutely dwarfed, uh, sort of, I, I guess, physically and. Uh, politically, socially, aesthetically, by by things that have arisen since. Um, and this may not be a question you are able to answer at all anyway, but I want, I, I'm sort of curious, given what you discuss about the kind of early arrival of foreign ideas and foreign architects and international firms in China in the, in the 80s and 90s, what, why is it, do you think, that so many of the big prestige buildings across China still, in very, very recent times, still in the last few years, have been designed by international architects but yeah you know, I, I don't know i'm thinking of you know rem Koolhaas's cctv building in beijing or others others that sort of have that kind of international pedigree why is there still the need for that even long after the changes that that you document here do you think if there, if there if it's an expression of a need of any kind do you have any do you have any feelings on that yeah i don't i don't know how how um how accurate that that is or rather i don't know that um that we can understand these these firms as um international versus Chinese. I think clearly you have figureheads like Rem Koolhaas who um, are from, uh, you know, from the Netherlands or, or other, other parts of, of the world. But uh, these are firms that are so incredibly international and to themselves with, um, you know, uh, partners that um, are from different countries and um, uh, designers within their ranks that are from China and, and from a number of other parts of the world. So, they're incredibly diverse and, and international in their own right, um, and they're—I uh, think you—the the, the, the operative word is—is is, I think you said prestige. There's a certain prestige that comes with these these signature architects or, or firms working in China. Um, I think there has been a chilling effect since 2014 and um, Xi Jinping's pronouncement of an end to you know Chi Chi Guai Guai the Jianzhu, the end of a weird architecture. Um, and that's that's had uh, somewhat of an effect of, upon this this dynamic in relationship to China's built environment. Um, and we also, of course, have architects um, who may have received one degree in China, but then received another degree somewhere else, and and they're they're working in China, but perhaps they're based um, in Dubai. Uh, so it's it's difficult, I think, to to assess them on that kind of that that. The, the foreign China dichotomy at this point. Well, I suppose in that sense, it's a, an expression or a very telling representation of China, not only as a full participant, as you mentioned, but really as a guarantor of a post-Cold War capitalized uh, you know, global order. Um, so uh, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think for all of the, all of the discussion and the, the debate and, and, and the, the anxiety about um, uh, cultural identity in relationship to Chinese architecture, 
I think another way to see China is as this really um, vital crucible for a, a kind of early hyper-globalized architecture, one that is within China and very much shaped by China, but one that has influences that extend far beyond the, the boundaries of China. Well, that's a, a story that yeah, whose origins you tell fantastically well in this book, uh, Cole Roskam, and thank you very much for uh, talking to us about it today. Um, before I let you go, uh, I'll perhaps ask what your new project is or what you're working on currently. Um, sadly, you've already uh, given away the fact that it's not going to be a deep dive into Chi Chi Guai Guai de Jenju, uh, but maybe that's down the line somewhere. Uh, I want to, it'd be great to see a kind of dissection of the, you know, the, the trousers building and uh, all these other kinds of, uh, you know, curious, curious edifices. But yeah, what is it that you've got uh, on the go currently? Um, I've, I've just completed a rough manuscript on um, detailing the architectural history of Hong Kong. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a particular reading of Hong Kong's built environment, um, understood uh, and organized around themes of crisis, uncertainty, and vulnerability. So I, I see it as having a certain relevance, even a sensitivity in light of what's happened in Hong Kong in, in the last few years. Um, but I was very much um, inspired and influenced by the changes that have taken place within the city and, and questions raised by my own students about how, how to research and teach and design architecture in Hong Kong um, today. So this, this is a book that attempts to, to offer a, a, a thematically organized history of, of how the city was built and designed and the forces that, um, that shaped that development. Fantastic. Well, and, and yeah, very timely, as you say, and uh, seems, uh, if nothing else, that the uh, production line continues to operate at, uh, at great speed. So uh, perhaps uh, we'll <laughs> have another conversation about that one before too long. Um, but in any case, uh, Cole Roskam, it's been great speaking to you again today. Thank you very much for appearing on the show. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate it. And listeners, uh, we also appreciate your listenership. Thank you very much for tuning in. This has been New Books in East Asian Studies, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.